And thank you, John, for coming and leading us today and bringing your team. We really appreciate that as well. Well, good morning, homies. How you bros doing? You dudes be chilling. I was just told to stop, so. <laughs> there is only one Sean Myers, amen? Yeah, okay. For those of you that have no idea what I'm talking about, please listen to the podcast or watch it online. Uh, from last week. And some of you have been asking, what about the rest of the story? You know, the weed and the Pepsi, okay? We would like to hear the rest of the story. So, number one, uh, grew up in central Phoenix, and so the neighborhood that this took place in was around Thomas and Central. And so, how many of you know where Honey Bear's Barbecue is on, Tom, on Central, just south of Thomas? That used to be a Taco Bell, and when I was 15 years old, it was, in fact, a Taco Bell, and that's where I got my Pepsi to, in order to clean myself up. Um, it's interesting, I was at RC on, on Friday night, and Allison DeSerafino, who, who helps lead our RC, um, asked me, or actually she told me, she said, Frank, I, I'm, I'm really disappointed that you drink Pepsi. And I said, Allison, you need to listen to the story. I did not drink the Pepsi, I poured the Pepsi on me. There is a difference between the two. Here's what I really want to get at, okay? The guy I was with was, is my best friend for life. I mean, we were born and raised together, essentially, just everything, everything. Um, and uh, he actually got caught by the police. And I got away. And he didn't give me up. He didn't tell them who I was. He didn't say he, didn't say he was with me, nothing. He, he protected me. Um, and, and just listen to this now. Later on, uh, he got a, an academic scholarship to either San Diego State University or University of San Diego. I can never remember which one. But he got an academic, smart guy, got an academic scholarship. He graduated from college and um, enlisted in the United States Navy as an officer and worked his way up the ranks and eventually became a captain in the United States Navy. Uh, during the Gulf War, he was uh, charged with um, being the commander of the security of the Gulf of Kuwait. Uh, he's an underwater demolitions expert, trained in, in uh, both the SEAL stuff and underwater demolitions. Um, his last uh, assignment uh, as a reserve in the Navy uh, was that he was the commanding officer for a year of Guantanamo Bay. Um, he just retired from the Navy. He was nine years active and, and uh, uh, I don't know, 25 or 30 years, uh, something like that, reserve and constantly called up. And uh, he's also a police officer for the, he's a sergeant for the San Diego Police Department. So um, the two of us, I became pastor of Redemption Arcadia. He became a naval officer, a very important naval officer and a police officer for uh, San Diego Police Department. So there is a moral of the story somewhere in there, but I'm going to leave it up to you <laughs> to figure out um, what that is. Okay, so uh, <laughs> I hope that built you up in some way. I <laughs> uh, want to remind you of the uh, Monday morning men's Bible study that's going on. Um, I, I think it's a 10-week study. We're about five weeks into it. It is not a series. It is topical, so you can show up. Any, it, it, even if you've missed a few weeks, you can show up, and, and you'll get a lot out of it. Steve Wheeler is leading it, and everything I understand about it is it's been a great study. So I want to encourage you. Uh, with that study again. And then the last thing, I, I know I'm doing a lot of stuff before we get into the sermon, but I wanted to uh, mention one other thing. Uh, David mentioned, and we've been mentioning for weeks now, that we are having baptisms on the 23rd of October. And I don't want to just say, hey, we're having baptisms and not um, uh, talk a little bit about what baptism means and what it doesn't mean 
and why it's important so that you have a little bit of context. And then I would encourage you, if you're, if you're thinking about it, you're praying about it, you're still unsure, or you have some questions, or you want to do it, please contact me. I would love to meet with you and, and work through that with you. Uh, so just three quick points about baptism. And, and this first one's a, got some tension to it. It's very interesting. Uh, baptism, if given the opportunity, is really not optional to the Christian. If given the opportunity, baptism is not optional. But at the same time, baptism is not required for entrance into the kingdom of God. We know this because the thief on the cross who was next to Jesus, uh, if I remember the crucifixion correctly, uh, when Jesus looked at the thief and said, today you will be with me in paradise, they did not stop the crucifixion. Both of them get down and him get dunked in the water. So it wasn't required, but if given the opportunity it is not optional. And here's why we say that. Number one, Jesus said, repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. There is always an association for Jesus between repentance and baptism. There's this association there. And so it is not optional if given the opportunity. The Apostle Paul, the first thing that happened to him after his conversion experience on the Damascus Road was that he went into town and he got baptized. Uh, the Ethiopian eunuch that Philip speaks to in Acts chapter 8, he's trying to figure out the scroll of Isaiah. Philip jumps up with him and explains to him that Isaiah 53 is all about Jesus who has come. And the, the Ethiopian eunuch looks at Philip and says, I need to be baptized. Look, there's water. What would prevent me from getting baptized? And Philip said nothing, and they went for it. And so baptism, first of all, is not optional. Second of all, baptism is not what makes you a Christian, but it is what Christian people do. It is a result of the saving grace and mercy and love and faith that Jesus now has taken hold of your life, that he has filled you with his spirit. It is what Christians do. It doesn't make you a Christian, but it is what Christians do. And then number three, here you go. It is a proclamation of your faith and trust in Jesus. Uh, we keep being told that religion is personal and private, that faith is personal and private. No, it is not, at least not in the Christian faith. And that is the tension that you and I must live with as Christians, that it is not personal and private, that we would never deny Jesus before others because Jesus says, well, then I'm going to deny you before my Father if you deny me before others. And so it is a proclamation of your faith and trust in Jesus. It is an outward reality of the, uh, is an outward um, um, demonstration of the new inward reality of you that the, the resurrected Christ lives in you. That you are a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. And it is a testimony of that. And maybe the most important thing is that it is an encouragement to your faith community. We don't just do baptisms at Redemption Church. We celebrate baptisms. It is a great thing to see this, this work of God in people's lives and the new creation that, that you have become. And so I hope that I, I'm not trying to finagle you or manipulate you into baptism. It's just that I, I began to be convicted about the fact that we throw the idea of baptism out there all the time, but we never really talk about it or explain it. And if you're a, like, like I was 30 years ago, I, I, I have no idea what you're talking about, man, and it just sounds religious and weird to me. So I'm hoping that maybe that would be helpful to some of you. Please contact me if you'd like to talk about it a little bit more. So let me pray, and then we're going to get into the Sermon on the Mount, the second half of Matthew 
chapter 6. Lord God, we thank you again for your love and grace and mercy. And we praise and honor and worship you because you are sovereign. You are the creator God of this universe. And everything bows and submits to you. And we praise and honor and worship you for the saving work of Jesus in our lives. For the fact that you fill us up with your Holy Spirit and the fact that you guide us and teach us with your word. And so now I pray uh, that you would just move me out of the way and that you would speak and proclaim and preach the good news of your son uh, this morning. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, we are working through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we're maybe about halfway through, and, and, and I want to remind you that the Sermon on the Mount is an entire unit. It is an overarching narrative of the politic and the discipleship of the kingdom of God's citizen. The politic, in other words, how we live our life, how we walk in the world, the politic, and the discipleship, the submission to Jesus and the coming under his teaching. So how we live and how we learn and how we are guided and given wisdom from Jesus in the kingdom of God. And believe me, the politic of the kingdom of God is different than the politic of the world. There is, a complete, uh, there is no reason to be involved in the Christian faith or come to church if there is no difference between the Christian faith and the church and the world. There is a distinction between uh, the two, and we need to understand that, and that's what Jesus is really digging into. And the verses today show us that the righteous politic of the kingdom of God works in the everyday details of our lives. Again, the Sermon on the Mount is not some grand pie-in-the-sky scheme, but ultimately unlivable it's not just great theory, but there's no way that we can do it. But rather, it is a map of true daily discipleship. Jesus doesn't just say, hey, this is a pretty good idea, and if we can do it, then that's great. He's saying, no. In me, you will be able to do this. You are called, in fact, to be able to live this way. And so today, we answer this question. In case you were wondering, you've asked this question. So we kind of answer this question today, will we trust and worship God or will we trust and worship stuff? Um, the, the, uh, the, the scripture, the interpretation that the ESV here has, uh, talks about, use, uses the word money, translates the Aramaic word mammon as money. So are you going to trust God or are you going to trust money? I don't think that money really gets at it though. I think that's too narrow. Money is a part of what the Aramaic mammon is. It's a part, but it's not everything. Uh, mammon, the, the Aramaic word mammon literally means all material goods and wealth. Anything that we have and that we strive for and that we want and that we collect that could potentially be elevated in importance above God and thus becomes a false god, an idol that we worship. And Jesus is presenting this, here you go, as a binary, as an either-or proposition about the worship of God and things. Just about the worship. Jesus is saying that we can't have it both ways. It's, he's not saying that material wealth and money and worldly goods are bad. He is not saying that. And I'm going to work on that for the next 35 minutes very hard. Because so many of us want to make stuff bad. 
And I'll explain why we have the tendency to do that. It's not that this stuff is bad, but if we worship it, if we elevate it above, importance, uh, above God in importance, that's the problem. Then we're in trouble. And believe me, we all have not just the tendency of doing that, but we do that. We do that. We can still have wealth, and we can have wealth, let me say it this way, we can have wealth and still honor, worship, and trust God above all. Did you follow that? We can have all this stuff and still honor, worship, and trust God above all, but we cannot honor, worship, and trust wealth and material things above all and still have God. That's what Jesus is saying. And one other note before we dive in. To trust and to worship wealth means that you and I are going to live with worry and anxiety. It just does. If we've given our hearts to wealth, if we trust wealth, if we worship wealth, if we idolize wealth, we will live with worry and anxiety because we all know inherently, all of us know inherently, we may never say it out loud, but all of us know inherently the unpredictable volatile and temporal nature of material wealth. It is passing away, and we know that. And some of us watch as it passes away right before our very eyes, and that's what makes us anxious and worried and stressed. So here's the big idea today. <laughs> Did you marry God for his money or for him? Remember last week what Sean said. One of the repeating themes through his sermon was that this is about God. This is about Jesus. It's not about us. So have we entered into a relationship with God because of all the stuff we think we're going to get and all the benefits? Or is it just because we love God? And that's what Jesus is calling us to. It's because we love God. So let me read verses uh, 19 through 24, and we'll unpack that for a few minutes. Again, Jesus says, do not lay up treasures for yourselves on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, money, wealth, stuff. So you look at verses 19 through 21, and if you're, if you're reading and asking questions, one of the questions you might ask is this. Is Jesus telling us to never plan or save? That there's no wisdom in thinking ahead? Is that what he's saying? Of course, not. of course not. Didn't Jesus also say that when you get ready to build a tower, you better count the cost? That's, that's like planning ahead. Is Jesus saying, hey, I don't think it's an, an important part of your financial responsibility to your family to buy life insurance. Just forget about that. Is that what Jesus is saying? No, of course not. There is wisdom in planning. There is wisdom in looking ahead. And, and one of the dangers of this passage that we look at today, all of these verses, is that people tend to make it about saving and planning and tend to make it about worry and anxiety, and we shouldn't do that. 
We, we need to just mention those things and make sure that we understand how they fit in the message. But ultimately, the key to this message is that it's about Jesus. It is about God. It is pointing us to the real object of our worship that we must submit to. This is about the worship and affections of our hearts. And Jesus is saying, it's him. It's him. And we need to understand the word heart. We use the word heart today uh, differently than they used it back then. Uh, in, in the Bible, especially in the Greek, the, the word there literally means the center of one's being, and it's all-inclusive. It's a comprehensive understanding of the center of your being. So in other words, it incorporates your ability to reason. It, it, it incorporates your feelings and passions and affections and it also incorporates your will, your desires, your volition. It's all of those things. It comprises everything that you are and what you give your heart to, the core of your being, what you give your heart to, we will worship and serve. And here you go. We are created to worship and serve something. You and I will all worship something. If we don't worship and, and praise and trust God, we're going to worship and praise something else. And I know some people push back on this and go, that's not true because really, I'm the one. I'm true to myself. Well, here you go. You are worshiping yourself. You're praising yourself. You're trusting yourself. How has that worked out for you, by the way? And be honest. Because I've asked that question before, and yeah, fine so far. We need to understand that we're going to give our heart to something. And it needs to be God. It needs to be God. That's what Jesus is saying here. But there's tension because I will tell you, the rewards of this world are really, really, really nice, aren't they? Could I get an amen there? I mean, come on. It's okay. All right? It's tempting, and we understand why we take them. And I would suggest that Jesus isn't even saying don't take them. He's just saying keep them in proper perspective. He says it'll cost us dearly if we don't keep them in proper godly perspective. And he's right. Make sure you're prioritizing things correctly. It's that language of loving and hating, which I'll explain in just a minute. Keep God in his place and stuff in its place. That's what he wants us to do. And... and the challenge, of course, is that when we take all of this good stuff that God has given us, this material thing, the worldly goods, when we take this good stuff, he's not saying this stuff is bad. When we take this good stuff, but we make it God's stuff, that's when it becomes bad stuff. That's when it becomes a problem. And then look at verses 22 and 23 again. Jesus says, it almost seems like he's misdirecting us here and, and going off topic, but it, he's right in his groove right now. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. If your eyes are gazed and fixed upon the right things, your whole body will be full of light. You'll be healthy. But if your eye is bad, if your eye is gazed and fixed on the wrong things, your whole body will be full of darkness. This is about the difference between righteousness and emptiness. 
Righteousness and emptiness. If our eyes are fixed on the right thing, Jesus, the body follows and will be healthy. We will live the righteous politic of the kingdom of God. But if our eyes are fixed on the wrong things, fixed meaning um, transfixed or or worshiping or prioritizing, and, and if it's the world, then the body will follow and we will slide into unhealthiness and emptiness. We will live a vapid existence. We may have a lot of stuff and achievements and success and a great resume, but underneath the surface, it becomes pretty empty. And there are people in this room, including myself, who have experienced that emptiness when we've trusted the wrong things in our lives. Uh, Cody uh, made a great point. Remember several weeks ago when we were wrapping up the Psalm series and we did Psalms 146 through 150 together? And, and Cody made a, a great point. He says, we are worshipers, and what we worship will change us. What we worship will transform us. And we will be transformed either towards holiness or towards corruption. It's just a fact. Uh, our pastor of, of our Tempe congregation, Ricardo Stewart, he started four years for Arizona State University on the football team. He was a safety. He was a defensive back. And he looks at this uh, little saying here in verses 22 and 23, and he said, that just reminds me of, of when I was being coached to be a good defensive back. We had to keep our eyes on the receivers, which was often very difficult to do because many times what a defensive back will do is he'll get transfixed on what's going on in the backfield and watching the quarterback and the running backs, and he'll get transfixed on that. And what happens when that happens to a, a defensive back? The receiver goes by him. You ever seen one of those touchdown plays where the receiver's wide open? It's because the defensive back is looking at the wrong thing. And he is now living a life of emptiness without Jesus. That's what's happening to him. (laughs) Casting his gaze on the quarterback. C.S. Lewis says it this way. When we fix our eyes on the world, we miss God and the world will destroy us. But when we fix our eyes on God, we live with God and have the world in perspective and contentment. We still have the world, it's just in its right place, because God is first. And then let let me reread 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. We cannot have divided affections. One will always be prioritized over the other. Let me explain that language of love and hate. The way... The ancient Greeks used the word hate is not that you shun or reject it. It just means that you need to have it in second place. So what Jesus is saying is you can't can't serve, you can't worship, you can't prioritize both of them at the same time. You will, by default, love one and make the other one second. He's not saying you'll shun it, you'll just make it second. That's what the language means. And if you don't think about this, and with great purpose, and with the power of the Holy Spirit in us, pursue God, we will naturally default to making money, mammon, stuff, the priority in our lives. And we will push God into his second place. It just reminds me of of what um, uh, Spurgeon once said. Man is comfortable with God anywhere except on his throne. That's what Jesus is saying here. And it's not that 
it's not that, you, that money, your career, success, education, status, it's not that those things are bad. In fact, in fact, here you go, I would say far from it and you should go for it. Ambition is not the enemy of the Christian life. It's not. But rather our misplaced, overblown affection for stuff is what can ruin us. I was asked recently to do a presentation in a business class at Grand Canyon University. A friend of mine is, is uh, teaching there as an adjunct instructor, asked me to come in, and I said, all right, what's my topic? And he said, uh, here's your topic. You're going to speak for 45 minutes and answer questions for 25 minutes. What, is, uh, what does God think of social media? At your he was teaching a networking social media and public relations class. So we answered the question, what does God think of social media? And, and uh, I set it up, I, have a, I, I also teach communication, so I set it up from that standpoint and then got into the theology of it. And frankly, it was kind of easy in terms of the theology. I used that, that Bible verse in 1 Timothy 6 that is, in my opinion, the most misquoted Bible verse, Bible verse in the entire world. When you hear somebody say, money is the root of all evil, you need to correct them. That's not the verse. That's not the Bible says money is the root of all evil. No, it does not. What does it say? The love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. Is this Bible verse about money or us? It's about us. This verse is not about money. It's about us. I pray and hope, and I've been praying and hoping this for years, that Christians and the church would do a better job of identifying the fact that God does not judge and condemn inanimate stuff, but rather his concern is for us, our hearts and our attitude towards stuff. We are what's at issue. And I think about this, I thought about the, I don't think it's a dumb question, I thought it was great and we had a great time in the class and uh, some of the elders here at Arcadia are saying, you should do that on Thursday night and teach it here. It'd be really fun to have that discussion. But I also thought about this. Historically, have we asked this question? Have we asked, like, like 600 years ago or whenever it was, when, when the printing press was invented, were there people walking around going, I don't know what God's going to think of that printing press. I don't know. I bet it's an instrument of Satan. Okay, now we're printing Bibles. That's an instrument of Satan, man. I don't know. Okay. Did we ask, what does God think of the radio? Did we ask, what does God think of the telephone? What does God think of cellular technology? What, is, what does God think of the television or computer? Do you see my point? If we're serious about this, we won't ask that question. We'll ask questions about our hearts. So let me just push on this a little bit further. Let's take it a little bit further. So video recording devices are used to make pornography, uh, pornography videos, right? So... Um, if you're a good Christian, does that mean that you should never, ever, 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 ever own, touch, look at, or think about any sort of video recording device? If that's the case, then right now, everybody needs to walk up here to the Redemption Arcadia altar of sacrifice and bring your cell phones up here, my brothers and sisters, and we are going to burn them right now. Just step out into the aisle, bring them up right up here. That's right. Am I getting the point across about how silly this is? Now, there is one thing I remember that you, we used to, people used to ask this question. They didn't even ask the question. They didn't ask the question. They just declared, rock and roll music is of Satan. 
Rock and roll music is of the devil. And I would ask, well, why is that? Because of the sex and the violence and the murder. And I go, oh, okay, better stop going to the opera. Do you see how silly this is? You know why we do this? Here's why we do this. Because if we can make the inanimate object the problem, we never have to look at ourselves. We never have to deal with ourselves. We never have to understand our relationship with God. It is a diversionary tactic. It's a distraction to keep God's eyes off us. It's what Eve did in the garden. The serpent deceived me and I ate. We've been doing this since the beginning trying to find something else to blame. Something else to blame. Jesus is not saying that mammon is bad. He's saying you are not to worship it. Problem isn't stuff. It's that our hearts need to be guarded against this. He's not saying that material things are bad. He's saying that materialism is a problem. And materialism is our heart towards things. And here's the good news about this undivided worship that only worships God. It helps us to eliminate a large portion of worry and anxiety from our life. Again, we cannot uh, separate the Sermon on the Mount into non-related sections, as many people like to do. The whole thing is connected. It's an overarching narrative. Look at the next ten verses. It starts with the word, therefore. It means that Jesus is connecting this next section with what he just said. It's not separated. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all of his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we wear, drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things will be added unto you. All of these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient is a day for its own trouble. So you see the connection there, the therefore. And he goes right into the birds and the lilies. Look at the birds. Look at the lilies. If God cares for them, and he created them, but they are not the crown of his creation. What's the crown of his creation? It's us. Paul, in Ephesians 2, says that we are God's masterpiece. He waited until the last day of creation to create us, and there was quite a bit of discussion before he did it. And we are the only ones created in God's image. The only thing. The only ones. The only creatures, the only creations created in his image. We are the top of his creation. So if he's caring for the birds and the lilies, if he takes care of them, why are we so anxious? Uh, Jesus is saying that worry may suggest a lack of faith and trust in God. Worry is a symptom of the fact that we have affections 
for something else more than God. Worry is a symptom of the fact that we've given our heart to something other than God because we know that that thing cannot satisfy us the way God does. And I want you to understand, this is not a call to passiveness or laziness. Please, again, ambition is not the enemy of the Christian faith. This is not a call to passiveness or to laziness. The birds still go out and look for their food. They're not sitting around on their futons in their nest waiting for food to be delivered to them. We are called to work. We are called to do. We are called to purpose. God calls us to those things, and they are good. We should be doing those things. It's inescapable that we're called to something, not to do nothing. Now, the fact is, we humans, we worry and we stress and we have anxiety. And part of the reason we do is because of all the sin that's been committed against us. That creates worry and anxiety and stress in us. And it's also because of our fallen nature. Just by nature, we're going to worry and have anxiety and stress. But to trust our worry and to trust our stress. Jackie right now is amazed that I'm up here preaching this because she's like, if anybody shouldn't be teaching on this. I've really had to wrestle with this. Every time I approach the Sermon on the Mount, I have to wrestle with this. I, I, I understand this. And the reason is because we think that it'll save us. We think it'll save our assets. If you worry just a little bit harder, the Dow will go up more tomorrow. You watch it. Just watch. Okay? It's weird but true. We think it's going to save us. It's the old saying, the, the, the person who says, who says worry doesn't help? Most of what I worry about never happens. You guys need a little caffeine. I'm not done yet. <laughs> See, Jesus is not necessarily saying that our faith is absent. He's saying that our faith is inadequate. We don't fully trust. Kind of got the Jesus thing going, but we don't fully trust yet. We, we trust in this stuff. What he's pushing us toward is the fact that the provision he will give us will be the provision we need. The provision he will give us, and by the way, the provision will be of his quantity and quality, and it will be on his timing, not ours. And that frustrates us, and that brings stress and anxiety and all that. I understand that. But when he delivers it, and what he delivers it, and what he gives us is always going to be what we need. And what we need more than anything is Jesus. And he's already given us that very clearly. And so we can trust him. God is a God of providence. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And his timing is not our timing, but we can trust him for that. And here's a challenge that, that we have, so many of us have, and I'm talking about people in the church, and I'm talking about the church itself. This is the challenge that we have. Too many of us live and operate out of what I would call a scarcity mentality of life and discipleship. We operate out of a scarcity mentality of life and discipleship. Rather than celebrating how generous God is with us, we instead tend to hoard what God has graciously given us. Have you ever noticed that? And we do that in church work as well. We worry about losing people. Okay, I didn't know we were in charge of them. I thought God was. Okay, we worry about losing people. We worry about sending people out. Well, what happened to us if we plant a church? Oh my goodness, there's going to be fewer people here. More room for you to sit comfortably. 
We worry about what finances we might lose. Well, he can go. He doesn't give very much. But oh, no, no, no. I believe God is calling you to stay here. You and your tithe need to stay here. Yes, my brother. It ought not to be that way. By the way, it's one of the reasons I don't look at that stuff. Because I know the darkness of my own heart. God gave all of this to us in the first place. Let's celebrate it and be generous. Verses 25 through 27, understand, there will be seasons. Ecclesiastes talks about the different seasons of life. Uh, Jesus is referencing it here too. There's going to be different seasons of our life. Okay? There's going to be seasons of ramen noodles and hot dogs, and if it's a really good night, Kraft macaroni and cheese. But then there are going to be seasons perhaps of Sam Fox restaurant concepts and, and, and flower child. And, and if, if it's a really good night, then the stand over on Indian School or Paradise Valley Burger Company. I'm a burger hound, I admit it. Listen to this. Listen, listen, especially those of you who are younger. Okay, listen hard to this. Sometimes we need to take that entry-level job until the job we're trained for comes along. Quit sitting around going, woe is me. I was trained for a corner office and a six-figure paycheck. And I'm not taking anything until then. We need to take the entry-level job until the job we are trained for comes along. Maybe that's God's purpose for us. Maybe in that job, that's where we're going to find our true calling. A lot of you remember Eugene Scott, right? Remember him? Wow, has it been that long since he was gone? Okay, Eugene Scott now works for CNN. He's in charge of covering the uh, entire presidential election on the internet for CNN, and he's also been on TV occasionally. Okay, I mean, he's, he's killing it, okay? So, Eugene is an advocate of unpaid internships in order to move your career down the road. At, at PVC, the Paradise Valley Community uh, College, I used to have him come in for an hour and talk to my COM 100 classes just so they could hear this message from Eugene. Listen, Eugene used to skip spring break in Florida in order to do unpaid internships because he knew that would be what what was good for his career and what God was calling him to do. And he did this because he had faith in God. He really has faith in God, that God will use that in his life. He understood the importance of allowing God to be God. And then look at verse 28, you know. Consider how the lilies of the field are clothed. I think this is bad news for clothing retailers. (laughs) I was in the clothing retail business for 17 years. And when I started reading the Bible and I became a Christian, I used to think that if everyone took this, this verse seriously, my business was in big trouble. And it's funny because in verse 29, Jesus points at Solomon. This is not just a passing comment. He mentioned Solomon because he knew that everybody knew who Solomon was, and he was the man. He was the cultural icon. He was the cultural artifact in his day. His annual income equivalency, if we do the math, was about a billion dollars. A billion dollars a year in his day. He was Bill Gates, Kim Kardashian, LeBron James, Chuck Norris. He was all of them. And he shopped wherever he wanted. 
He went to the Biltmore. He went to Rodeo Drive. He went to the outlets in Anthem. He could go anywhere he wanted. But Jesus says, doesn't matter where he goes, he still doesn't look good as those lilies. And God clothed those lilies. It's awesome. It's about faith and trust. Look at verse 30. Let me reread that. But, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So here's, here's the nexus of this passage. It's about your faith and trust. Who are you going to put your faith and trust in? God or stuff? The wealth of the world or the riches of Jesus? And then look at 32 and 33. For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows what you need, that, that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Uh, the inference in verse 32 is look around, look at all the non-believers, look at all the Gentiles. They're the picture of what is anxious, and yet those things that they are chasing after will never give them the stress relief and the ease that they so desire in their life. Um, I, I love this story. I've told it many times before. Uh, the Dallas Cowboys won Super Bowl twelve. They beat uh, the Denver Broncos. And after um, the game, during the Super Bowl celebration in the Cowboys locker room, um, two of my favorite defensive backs in the history of the NFL, Charlie Waters and Cliff Harris, were sitting in front of their lockers, just sitting there while everybody else was partying. And Cliff Harris looks over at Charlie Waters and he says, so who do we play next? Do you know what he's saying? He's saying, I wanted this Super Bowl victory so much because I thought it would fulfill me in a way that I've never been fulfilled, and it's not doing that for me. I'm just wondering who I'm going to play next. Michael, Michael Jordan, I think the greatest basketball player who has ever lived and probably ever will live, he won six NBA titles with the Bulls, and now he's banging his head against the wall with the Charlotte Hornets as an owner because he doesn't feel fulfilled yet. And he's achieved more than anybody in this room, I'm guessing. It's, it's the movie uh, Wall Street, Money Never Sleeps. When Shia LaBeouf asked Josh Brolin's character, he says, well, how much is enough? And Josh Brolin says, more. More, it's always more. And verse 33 is the payoff. Seek first the kingdom of God. Listen, if you're married, the purpose of marriage is not to seek happiness. And by the way, you've probably already discovered how futile that was. <laughs> God's purpose in marriage is to seek holiness, and then the happiness comes. Happiness is a byproduct. And if you're single, if you're single, and you want to be married, quit putting marriage on a pedestal. It's not a God. Romance is not a God. It's not bad, but it's not a God. If you make it into a God, you're going to be disappointed. The purpose of singleness is the same as marriage. Seek holiness, not romance. Maybe romance will come, but if you're seeking holiness, that's where you're in the eye of the hurricane, safe from everything else. The purpose of life is God first, everything else second. Love God and hate the world in a biblical way. Keep it at arm's length, but still enjoy it. So divided affections in the gospel. Again, Jesus' point isn't that stuff is bad. Rather, he's saying, what are the true affections of your heart? God gave you his gift of salvation and provision out of a love that is so challenging for us to understand, but once we understand it, it changes our lives. 
I'm going to end. I know I'm, I'm a little over time, and I'm sorry about that, but I want to end with something that I've done once before, maybe 18 months ago, but it's so powerful. I, I want to read it again, and so many of you have never heard this before. It's wonderful. Um, it's not very scholarly, but it's beautiful. It's a text conversation, a text conversation that occurred between Aaron Daly, who is the pastor of our uh, Alhambra congregation, and his 11-year-old son. Aaron has five children, has a full-time job, and he pastors our Alhambra. He's a little busy, okay? And, and I just want you to listen to this text conversation because I think this gets exactly what Jesus is saying here. It starts with his son, his 11-year-old son, texting Aaron. Hey, Dad, you don't have to. Uh, by the way, I'm adding the inflection, so just remember that. You don't have to, but I was wondering if we're watching the kids twice, I could have a dollar for my game on my iPod. Aaron answers, LOL. Seriously? Just ask me for the dollar. Do not try to make me owe you the dollar. What do you mean? If I somehow owe you money, then you are in big trouble. You are in major debt to me for all that I have done for you as your father. Now, if you just want me to give you the dollar, that's a different story. You can give me the dollar because I watch them, but you don't owe it to me. It's because I did a good job watching them and you think you should give me a dollar for it. <laughs> what if I just want to give it to you because I love you and I enjoy giving you stuff when I can? If I did it because of work you do for me, wouldn't you owe me more because of all that I do for you? Could you ever pay me back for all that I've done for you? Okay. <laughs> I love that. Okay, what? <laughs> what do you mean? Read what I wrote and think about what I'm saying. Time passes. No, I could never repay you. Okay, so if it, is, if, if it is out of work, I owe you nothing. But if it is out of love, I will do all I can. Does that make sense? Yeah. Son, this is the core of our relationship with Jesus. I can never say to Jesus, look what I did, give me something in return. But I ask him because he loves me. See what I mean? What are you saying? Think about this because it took me a long time to understand it myself. Here's what I'm saying. I love you, son, more than you can ever do for me. I'm thankful for how you're growing and learning. It makes my gift pointless to you if I'm doing it because I owe you. I love you and I want to give it to you for that reason, because of our relationship of love. I understand. Do you see how this relates to our relationship with Jesus? Yes. How? Because Jesus doesn't owe me anything. And because he loves me, he provides me with my needs even though I don't deserve anything. Amen. That should give you great joy, confidence, and trust. It also sets you free to live a, a life in God's grace. I love you, son. Okay, thank you. I liked your lesson. But I never got my answer about if I could have the dollar. <laughs> LOL, yes. I would love to give you a dollar because I love you. Thanks, Dad. Did you marry God for his money or for God? Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth. And I pray that you would just apply it to our hearts and let our hearts be ones of affection for you 
And while these, this, all this stuff that we desire and want and makes life more enjoyable is not necessarily bad, we just need to keep it in perspective. So help us to do that. Give us the, not only the wisdom to do that, but also the courage to do that. Impress into you. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to have our time of, of uh, response and reflection. We're going to sing a couple of songs together. We're also going to take communion. If the communion servers would please uh, come forward. Uh, if you just come down the middle aisle and maybe kind of, again, like, kinda like we're dismissing for a wedding from the front to back, that helps us go a little bit uh, more quickly and orderly, if you could do that. Uh, we also have the gluten-free over here as well. I wanted to point that out to you. Um, we'll have people in the wings, if uh, the elders and deacons and staff people who are here could come to the wings and they can pray with you if you need uh, prayer this morning. Uh, we have our new giving boxes that Sean mentioned last week, and if, you wanna, if you've come prepared to give, you can do that. But uh, if nothing else, please sing along with us as, we, uh, as John leads us. <laughs>